Hey guys, welcome. Okay, I am so excited because today we are going to hear an interview I did with two advocates, Lee and Amber, from the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. These guys are the leading voice in the state of Washington, and it's an incredible interview about something you might not have a lot of knowledge about, reproductive justice. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's do this. We are recording, so please begin. Good morning. My name is Lee Hoffheimer, and I work at the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and we're a private nonprofit. We're made up of over 70 programs that provide a variety of services in the community for survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse as well. And anyone can be a member of the coalition. So feel free to check us out at our website, wscadv.org. So we work to support the programs that provide direct services. We work to help um, pass good laws and stop bad laws and make sure policy and legislation supports survivors and their children. And we also work to inform the general public and engage with the general public about how we all can support someone who might be living in a relationship experiencing coercion and abuse. And I've been here for 25 years, Wow! so I kind of grew up with the coalition, but I've had the direct service advocacy jobs. I started off at a YWCA in Norfolk, Virginia on a helpline, and I've been a community-based advocate and worked in the legal system and worked in a shelter and kind of done all the jobs before getting to my dream job at the coalition. So that's a little bit about me. Oh, one thing I would add is like now, I am focusing um, our work and our conversation around reproductive justice and how that's tied and how that and how those connections are made with survivors experiencing abuse and what we can do to um, support folks. Hi, my name is Amber Barcel and I'm an intern at Wiscadiv. I'm getting my master's in social work at the University of Washington School of Social Work here in Seattle. I've been an intern with Wiscative for five months and my history before coming to school um, I was a sex educator with Planned Parenthood for three years with an emphasis on reproductive justice and then for the last um, three years on a personal level I'm involved with um, reproductive justice for Asian American Pacific Islander women. So my angle is reproductive justice and domestic violence is newer to me. So can you please explain the concept of reproductive justice. I think it's a term that many people are unaware of within the spectrum of domestic violence. So reproductive justice is a combination of the words reproductive rights and social justice, and it was coined by black women in 1994. And then three years later, Sister Song, the organization that really centers reproductive justice and is the national leader of reproductive justice was formed. But um, what these women came up with in 1994 uh, were some tenets based on the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And those three original principles were the right to have children, the right to not have children, and the right to parent those children in safe environments. A newer one, I think it's newer, is the right to bodily autonomy. And as far as the way that that ties into domestic violence, I'll have Lee talk about that more um, because that's something that's a little newer to me. I know how it fits into sex education and reproductive rights, and Lee can talk about DV. 
Thanks, Amber. So when we think about making those connections with reproductive justice, you know, you can think about how difficult sometimes it is to negotiate decisions around birth control or when to get pregnant or not be pregnant and how to parent. And even in the best of circumstances, those things are complicated. And so the really a one strong and obvious connection is we believe that everyone should be free to make decisions about their body, their family, their experience of sexuality and violence without, excuse me, their experience of sexuality without violence and without coercion and without external control like states or policy or regulations or medical practices telling people regulating people's bodies and their choices that they make. And so we hope that people can love who they want to love, build the kind of families they want to build, be able to have children or not have children, raise those children in healthy and safe environments where you have access to clean food, clean water, good food, safe housing, equitable health care. So what we want for people is all those things, love, sex, family, and community. And we're working towards reproductive justice by ensuring that people all have that right to have the children they want to have or not have children and be able to parent in safe and healthy environments. And so we think that by doing that work, we're counteracting some of survivors' experience when these rights are being taken away from them by an abusive partner or medical professionals or the state, and that we hope we're giving people more options if they're experiencing any of these things and helping to remove barriers to access those options and really supporting survivors to be able to make long-term decisions and the freedom to make decisions around their reproductive health, their parenting, and that really gives people a chance to write their own futures, to hold up their own autonomy. So you mentioned this includes states and policies. Is that part of the battle for reproductive justice? Yes, and I'm glad you said part because reproductive rights and access to good health care are part of what we're talking about, but not all of what we're talking about. What's all of it then? So all of it is being able to love who you want to love, mm -hmm. um, build the kind of families you want to build, mm -hmm. and then the parenting piece, being able to parent in safe and healthy environments with access to equitable health care. Mm -hmm. So if you're someone experiencing coercion or abuse and you are in a relationship where you're in a, you're living in you're living in a relationship that's same gendered or same sex and your partner threatens to out you to your family or to your job if people don't know they're taking away some decisions around the kind of family you want to build or if you can't get good health care access to health care to help have a baby or take care of yourself around reproductive health issues then again, the state is having an influence. Or even as simple as like, you can't um, create a birthing plan the way you want to. Someone's telling you that um, you, can't, you can't wear a headscarf when you're in labor, mm. or you uh, can't have certain people around you when you're in labor, or they don't understand why you might want to have a birth plan that asks for some specific things around safety and confidentiality. And such as what? So such as, like, I don't want this person to be present mm. at, during the birth, and I want that to be respected. Or I do want this person to be present, and I want that to be respected. And so just having, like, 
people listen to you from a very personal and individual place, but also, you know, if we think about policy, um, do you have access to to be able to buy um, help be able to buy birth control easily, even if you're underinsured or not or lowly insured or not insured under our statewide kind of like Medicaid plan? Is there access to birth control? Is it easy to get? Um, is it affordable? Mm -hmm. And so, like one of the things that happened in our state is that now most healthcare plans allow you to buy birth control pills a year's worth at one time if you would like to. You can buy a smaller amount if you want, but like for survivors who maybe this is the one time they can get to the pharmacy or get to the doctor to get that prescription, it's really helpful to know you can get your pills all at one time and you're not dependent on someone for transportation or money. So there's no additional cost for that, mm. no additional out-of-pocket expense. So that was something that we worked for in our state. It's just one small, very practical um, policy change that for a survivor who's like planning and strategizing how can I get access to birth control that would make it easier for them? Amber, would you like to add anything to that statement? So back to the original question about how the state has kind of been involved with uh, reproductive justice issues. So things to think about are police violence. So um, knowing that you know, one of the tenants is the ability to raise your family in a safe environment. Well, how do you do that if you're worried that um, your child is at risk for police violence because of their racial identity? Um, also thinking about things like Lee had said around environmental justice. So knowing that marginalized communities are more likely to be exposed to air pollution, noise pollution, or uh, food deserts is a way to think about that. Um, even with Medicaid expansion, there's still limitations to that. There's there's still a five-year Medicaid ban for people that are permanent legal residents, and that um, impacts um, immigrants' abilities to access Medicaid. Um, you know, thinking about shackles for incarcerated um, pregnant people when they're giving birth. Um, of course, abortion access is a big thing that comes up, and then something that the reproductive justice rights movement is also very interested in is economic justice and policies that can decrease the wage gap or about pay transparency. And um, I know that Whiskative is also doing a lot of work around economic justice for survivors. So one thing that has really struck me so far is that the conversation has been a bit broader than I think most people would expect from this organization that is so focused on domestic violence. Typically you think of a situation where you have an abuser and a survivor, but we have sort of branched out into talking about overall policies, economic justice, environmental justice. Is this part of the reason why this specific concept, reproductive justice, is so hard for people to become aware of or to thoroughly understand? I'll give my opinion, Amber can give hers. I think it's part of it. I mean, I think generally people, when they think of domestic violence, they think of people in extreme crisis that need to do something now. And I think what I've certainly learned over the years is that we really want everyone to feel more comfortable talking about relationships, period. And people can be living in a coercive and abusive situation that's not an extreme crisis every day, but their decisions are undermined, their choices are more limited, and they face some kind of consequence if they are resisting the person who's wanting to have power over them, like taking your kids for two days and not knowing where they are, or monitoring how much money you spend at the grocery store, 
or embarrassing you at your job. All things that are not crimes, but things that make your world smaller. And I think to really support survivors, we've learned like we have to look at the totality of people's lives. This is not just about a moment in time and crisis. So safe, affordable housing helps survivors and their children. A livable wage helps survivors and their children. Access to equitable health care helps survivors and their children. Doing anti-oppression work, removing barriers around racism, classism, homophobia, ableism, all those things. Everybody, you know, that all helps survivors and it all helps our communities become more loving, just, and safe communities. So that's, so, so I've really learned that we might have started with just thinking about people in crisis to thinking about, well, if we're gonna actually change the conditions that allow things like domestic violence and sexual abuse to continue, then we have to look at the totality of our lives and what we're all living in. And, and everything we're engaged in, I feel like is, the thing. I, one of the things I love about reproductive justice is that it feels very liberatory to me because it's about what do we all need to have to love and live freely without worrying about coercion, abuse, or lack of autonomy or not being supported. Like, what is it that we all want? Reproductive justice can feel really broad, and it is broad. So what I always try to do is bring it back to the three central tenets that you have the right to have children, to not have children, and the right to parent those children in safe and healthy environments. I think what has surprised me most when talking about reproductive justice in the realm of domestic violence, which, I, like I said, is new for me, um, and what's striking me during conversations about connecting reproductive justice and domestic violence is that I feel like I'm needing to take a step back. And like Lee was saying about you know the wholeness of a person, what's, what's sticking out to people that work in DV is that there is sometimes this shock that people that are experiencing abuse or survivors are also sexual, like whole people. So um, I'm just like, oh, that's that's something I have to step back on and maybe remind people about. So even if we're talking about birth control um, or I don't know, it's just I feel like there's this people that are really open to the conversation say, I know people that are in the movement that would be resistant to this because they don't accept that survivors are having sex or should be having sex, um, even if they're having sex against their will in a, in a relationship. But, um, you know, what if they're using sex for like, liberation? Well, should survivors be doing that is a question I feel like people are considering. So I don't know if I'm answering your question well, but when it comes to combining reproductive justice and domestic violence, there's sometimes that, that disconnect, like, oh, people are sexual, no matter their situation. So Ariel, I was thinking about when you asked the question, you know, how do we make the connection between domestic violence and reproductive justice? And one thing that occurred to me is like, even when we started having conversation with domestic violence and sexual assault advocates, like how are we going to make that connection with them too? And one way in is to talk about reproductive and sexual coercion. And I'd like to use the Futures Without Violence um, definition of reproductive and sexual coercion. So the, those it involves behaviors that a partner uses to maintain power and control in a relationship that are related to reproductive health, like attempts to pressure impregnate a partner against their issues, wishes, against their wishes, 
controlling an outcome of a pregnancy, meaning I want you to get pregnant or I want you to terminate this pregnant pregnancy, coercing a partner to have unprotected sex, like, and interfering with birth control methods. So like, it's a fancy way of saying like messing with someone's birth control, not really letting them have a voice in family planning decisions, um, not supporting their use. And it's, it, it, we're talking about individual behavior, so we're narrowing it again, but it made sense to advocates because they have conversations with survivors all the time that, that I think people would be kind of surprised at. First of all, they don't see themselves as a victim of anything. They just say, this is how it rolls in my relationship. I'm a part of a, I'm part of a community that has a lot of uh, values around having as many children as possible and doesn't support birth control. Um, or this is, hey, the sex is the only thing that's still good between us. It's still hot. But, like, if you explore a little bit more around decisions around do you get to have, you know, do you get to negotiate birth control use? Do you do you get to talk about, like, when you want to have kids or not? Or, you know, then, then things, you can see that things get more complicated really quickly. So we're not interested in people having to say, like, I'm a victim of reproductive and sexual coercion. But we wanted to kind of put in the background of advocates' minds when they're listening to survivors' stories that if your decisions are undermined in your daily life, why is sexuality going to be somehow a neutral zone? Even if the sex is hot, even if you say sex is a way for us to connect, there still can be um, coercive pressures that are going on that influence someone's decisions. So the idea then is to talk with survivors about options for them. So somebody coming to an advocacy program, the thing they might come to a program about is for housing needs or some economic justice needs or something else that they might need practically. But as an advocate, if you're just providing information to say, hey, did you know that there's some forms of birth control that are less likely to be felt by a partner and some interrupt your period and some don't? Or hey, did you know that emergency contraception now is legal and we've got some on our desk drawer because we just order it for Amazon for eight bucks instead of paying $50 at Bartels, you know, and just provide information for people. They don't have to disclose their story to you to figure out what they want and need and just have that available in a private place that give people their dignity. Put the emergency contraception in the bathroom. People don't have to ask you for it. They're grown-ups. What can we do to preserve a survivor's dignity and just get that information out there? So it was a way Talking about reproductive and sexual coercion was a way for people to, like, check their judgments, as Amber was saying, you know, how can this survivor be thinking about going out and having sex? She's got so much on her mind. Or what do you, you know, that's the last thing she needs. But, like, actually, if we're about supporting survivors' decision-making and we're about helping people get what they want and need, maybe that's what you want and need that night, just to have some fun or that's something that's okay in your relationship. But to, like, get us to check our own judgment... And then that then kind of opened the door to talking about what reproductive justice is beyond birth control access and to think about the totality of people's lives, which means like, what's your experience with law enforcement in your community? What's your experience with medical professionals? Do they listen to you or do they not? I mean, we've all seen the statistics around maternal and infant mortality for black women in this country. Like it just kind of opened the doors to a lot of other conversations to support survivors. I keep going back to this idea that when I guess people in general are uncomfortable with survivors having sex not just survivors though I feel like our society as a whole looks poorly upon women who have sex in general is that a huge influence 
in this movement. Okay. So I, I don't, I guess in the field of domestic violence, I can't really answer that, but my experience was, um, working with young people, young adults in sex education. So for me, that fight was just the fact that young people are having sex and that they have the right to have sex. And also, you know, even if I'm talking about sex, it's like, it's very preventative, right? If we have these topics are very preventative. So just right now, one of the bigger movements within reproductive justice and sex education is to talk about pleasure. Um, and even how hard that is to do, you know, it's hard enough to do that when you're talking in high schools or um, it's a little less taboo when you're in colleges, but with adults even, it can be really uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's so true. And I think one of the things that happens with um, this dis discussion of survivors and people being sexual and enjoying sex and sex for their own pleasure um, is that we have a lot of judgment about like um, when it should happen, the conditions that should happen. I mean, it you know totally opens up conversations around um, consent and what that all looks like. And I think you know just even it was interesting just even having the conversation with advocates and coworkers around having emergency contraception available. It just brought up everyone's issues from everything ranging to body image to do we even know our our body parts to what is the difference between emergency contraception and abortion medication and how do I feel about this and do I love my body do I have shame about my body uh, who who is having sex anymore or do you stop having sex at some point I mean I, I'm I'm 60 years old and every now and then I go into a, a Bartels or a Rite Aid and I bring up the emergency contraception piece of paper because I just want to see if you can get it easily and invariably people pause and look at me and just look at me for a beat like you need this <laughs> you know so it's just like so um pervasive right and we just do it without even thinking about it so i think it was a really good um backdoor way into talking about sexuality and what we want and deserve and have a right to and and just thinking about, you know, again, obviously we talked a little bit earlier about the Harvey Weinstein case. One of the things that came up with me, comes up for me again in thinking about the Me Too movement is just like how difficult it is for people to understand if you're in a relationship or have an ongoing relationship or married with someone and you have sex with them and then you're experience abuse, assault, rape at a later time. It's like, well, once you've given consent, have you given it up for life? Do you get to say what you want and what work and what you want and what you need? So I still think we're, you know, unfortunately at 60, still having these conversations that I, th I had hoped we were really starting to have with women's consciousness raising groups when everybody was looking at their cervix in their 70s. But here we are again. <laughs> Earlier you mentioned that there are some communities, you know, where is there's this deeply rooted sense of, I have to have as many children as possible. You know, my mom's from Taiwan and my family's from mainland China. And I was definitely raised in this community where it was always assumed I was going to have children, but I don't want children and I'm just my husband. And I still get a lot of shame about that. So when you look at this movement, would you say that there's definitely cultural influence and there are certain groups that have more barriers than others, more pressures than others. 
Well, I'm just going to speak from my experience. So I'm Jewish, and I've done um, advocacy and work in the Jewish community all my adult life. And some parts of our Jewish community where people are more, uh, I, th I think you would think of it as religious and traditional and observant and don't believe in birth control, don't believe in abortion, believe it's a miracle to have as many children as possible. I've seen women who are in living as part of those communities and deciding that they don't want to have any more children and step outside their community to seek, uh, for instance, getting an IUD with the strings cut off from a non-Jewish uh, medical provider and then stepping back into their community. They're not leaving their community. So I think that individual people make decisions about what they want to do with their lives and still are parts of communities that are very important to them. So I see that that tension happening all the time. So one thing I just think about is like, how can we just get that information out there and be available to people so that um, it's not a big secret about, you know, where you can get information about other ways of like um, negotiating family planning or birth control or, or what you want for yourself. So I think it, I just use that example as a, as a way to highlight some of the pressures that I know survivors negotiate. Okay, um, so some some community pressures that I've heard people talk about, folks or their communities or cultures are more about keeping issues within the family, the immediate family, um, seeing people who are male as the decision makers and the power holders, and and then of course you know some communities whether it's cultural or religious. Um, don't support birth control or um, access to abortions. So those are some barriers that some specific communities are working with. And I have an example of a friend who is an advocate for um, South Asian women. And she recently was helping a survivor. And what she, what her takeaway from this was, was how grateful the survivor was to be able to speak her native language um, with this advocate. And it's a pretty um, niche language, I think, that's spoken in the U.S. I won't share what it was, but um, the survivor was just really grateful. And then something as simple as gift giving, um, how hard it is to tell, like I'm, I'm Korean and how hard it is to turn down gifts from clients when with a lot of Asian cultures, and I'm sure more, our, our language of love can be gifts and our language of gratitude when we don't know what to say can be gifts. Um, so that really stuck out to me and just the importance that you have an advocate who is not coming in with like this saviorist ethnocentric lens that understands what your needs are because of your culture and is able to work with you on that. So one phrase that has been thrown around a lot is totality of a human life. So with that in mind, I would like us to take now a closer look at this reproductive justice movement and link it to violence against women. It's a connection that you make on your website and that we've made and talked about briefly here, but I really want to drill down on how the two intersect. I'm really grateful to work with someone like Lee who understands the individual applications to reproductive justice and, reproductive justice and domestic violence because I'm still trying to make those connections. So my experience with the reproductive justice movement and also as a macro social worker is 
um, really on the policy level, especially on the federal uh, level. So an organization that I'm really involved with, that's a RJ org for API women, their tenants are reproductive rights, immigrant rights, and economic justice. And um, some things that they've been working on since I've been involved, you know, they sent a bunch of us to D.C. Uh, to protest the appointment of Brett, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And um, right now they're, they're in D.C. and New Orleans um, in front of the Supreme Court because the Louisiana ruling around abortion is being talked about. Um, lots of other things and uh, another thing that that we're working on is you know expanding health care access to immigrant women and children so again my experience with violence against women and the RJ movement is really around policies um, some other things that I've noticed about the reproductive justice movement I went to the sister song conference in October of 2019 and they were starting to talk about transformative justice and accountability and this really stood out to me because because it's something I'm learning here at Wiscative, and it's you know thinking about alternatives to punishment outside prisons and jails or the general criminal legal system because you know we know without a doubt that marginalized communities, communities of color, um, experience more harm from the criminal legal system than they do help. Um, so we have to be able to think about that nuance when women of color, queer people of color, trans people of color. Um, are experiencing harm, why they still may be hesitant to contact the police or um, go to the courts. And this really goes against what I'm learning is carceral feminism, which is, um, I think it's defined as a belief that, you know, prisons and jails are the, are the, the best response to um, violence against women and the reproductive justice rights movement and the transformative justice movement, which are both, you know, started by queer and trans people of color and women of color are saying that that may not be the best option. So this is kind of a tangent, but I really want to ask, um, because you brought this up, mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of folks speak very negatively about intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. So can you please quickly explain about intersectional feminism and why it's so important that we as advocates are an important concept for us to embrace. Yeah, so with intersectional feminism, that goes beyond white feminism, right? So there, the reproductive rights movement was really started and it was meant for um, middle class and wealthy white women, right? So what intersectional feminism asks us to look beyond is, you know, who, who else is experiencing oppression by the state or oppression by individuals and intersectional feminism really looks at um, a whole person right so i'm i'm an asian woman if you look at me you can tell but i'm so much more than that and um so i think i have a lot of friends that identify as queer and black and for them it's like my blackness is not um, the one thing that defines me, my queerness is not the one thing to, that defines me. You can't silo those parts of people's identities. You can't separate someone's gender identity from their race because a white trans woman may not be as oppressed as a black trans woman. Um, so it's it's really looking at someone as a whole person and not separating any part of their identity for the sake of fitting into a box. And when it comes to survivors, um, it means that we have to be able to support survivors for like Lee was saying, the totality of their their humanness. <laughs> That's the phrase of the day. <laughs> I'm 
just want to add to that, and Amber brought this up earlier. You know, when you were talking about carceral feminism and seeing that the solutions around prison and jail and as punishment as the as the thing to respond to violence and coercion that survivors experience for years survivors has been saying to us we don't that's not necessarily what we want and that we're looking for other can you talk to my person causing harm can you help i love this person can you help them do better can you help them get a better job can you help them uh go to counseling with me if that's what the survivor wants can you help make a difference can you just uh i don't want to call on the police i don't want to rely on the criminal legal system i don't want my person deported I don't want a whole lot of other things that we've been deciding. And when I say we, um, I would say mainly um, white-centered answers to how do we respond to domestic violence. And so when we think about one of the things that I think is so um, engaging about transformative justice is we're thinking about community solutions, big and small. And then who should we start with? Survivors are the experts on their lives. They know their people best. They know their community that they live in best. They know the support system best. There's creativity, resourcefulness, courageousness. And so I really am so um, excited and happy to see the connection between reproductive justice and transformative justice and learning from people like Amber who are coming to our, helping us think about our work differently and how to reach with, how to reach other communities and really how to, how to live and, and live to the values of what um, we want for all of us and what survivors tell us. A really great place to start is to just say that you believe them and like Lee had said, to thank them for sharing that with you. Um, something to think about is, you know, with the Me Too movement and such strong like, social media presence around news around sexual assault is if you find yourself to be one of those people that victim blame people that are sexually assaulted or experiencing abuse, think about you know, what kind of message that is sending to the people that you love and care about. Um, that's something that I would consider. Some other things you can do to just show that you're open to the conversation. Um, you know, when things like this are happening, you know, just openly state, like, I, I believe survivors, point blank. You know, um, point blank is a really violent thing to say. You could edit that out. Um, I believe survivors, period. Um, so I think it's really about believing people and thinking about what kind of actions and words you're putting out into the universe that show that you you truly believe survivors. Can I ask one last question? Yeah. So there have been like there has been pushback about the term believe survivors because there is a lot of fear about well what if there's you know someone's lying what if there's a lot of over exaggeration. My personal feelings is that the pendulum has been so far in the direction of ignoring our stories and ignoring survivors' testimonies. It's about time it swings the other way. What are your personal thoughts? Well, I think, you know, if we're talking about a survivor, someone who's experiencing coercion and abuse, and they might be coming to you with, like, I'm not sure what's going on, or something like, this is something going on. Um, one of the things that um, we have on our website that might be really helpful for folks is, the, is a friends and family guide, and it's there's an online version. So have, all you have to do, I think, is put friends and family guide slash whiskative. And they have like really straightforward practical questions that you can ask the person who's come to you. Like, what's your biggest worry? Um, what's the thing that keeps you up at night? What are you concerned about? 
how can I help you now? What, what do you want from me? I mean, sometimes people are so afraid to have the conversation because they don't know what, what complexity it's going to unlock. But it actually really, if you think about it, you want to start with a thing that's the priority for the person sitting in front of you. And then there's, you know, we talk about listen up, um, ask a question, listen up, stay connected. So then we have like phrases around acknowledgement for people. You know, you never want to ask a question that you don't answer and acknowledge, you know, and it could be of everything from, I don't know what to say right now, but thank you for sharing with me to thank you for sharing with me. And <laughs> this is hard and no one deserves this to be happening to them. And then we've got um, links to resources. You know, one thing, our National Domestic Violence Hotline now has a lot of advocates that speak in a lot of languages, not using the language line. I think there's over 22 languages that are being spoken. So if someone could call the hotline and talk to someone directly, and then that hotline, the national hotline, has the ability to connect to any state in the country so they can like help you circle back to what services are in the community that in which you live. Um, whether you're part of queer community or community of color or Jewish community, sometimes there are programs that are speaking directly that are in communities, you know, the phrase we use, by and for communities, but they're started by people who live within the communities to help support their own communities. That can be available. Sometimes people want to step outside their community, and you can find out those resources as well. So I think just opening the door to, to signal that you're a person that's not afraid to have this conversation is a great place to start and that anybody can call an advocacy hotline. You can kind of do problem solving or consultation or just think about if you're worried about someone's safety or a child's safety, anybody can call. You don't have to be the person who's experiencing the coercion abuse. You can get that support. And then just having more options and information out there for folks, you know, as we talked about with um, something as simple as like, um, you know, there are some birth control options I heard about. <laughs> if you if you want to know more about it, I bet we could find out, you know, that people, you don't have to be an expert on some of these things to just know the right questions. So from an individual standpoint, that's where I would start. What are your thoughts um, or what is your response to someone who might say, we can't believe all survivors without, I guess, knowing more information? Yeah, I'm thinking more of the context of if someone is coming to you. So... Um, you know, even if you as a whole, like, even if you believe that there are people out there who lie about sexual assault or domestic violence, can you say to someone you care about, can you say to their face, people make this up, you may be making it up? Probably not. Um, so I think that, yes, that belief definitely is out there, but you can't think that if someone is coming to you and sharing that. It's the best point to start with is that you believe them. Amber, Leigh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I think experience shows and also research shows that when people who are experiencing this type of coercion, this inequality, they tend to go to friends and family first for help, for advice. What would you say to those people and what knowledge would you give them to arm themselves to be effective allies? Next time, we hear from a psychotherapist turned true crime writer. Can you guess who it is? 
If you think you have it figured out, email us at thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at The Diva Discussion. Even if you don't have a guest and you want to say hi, email us, reach out. We're here. We want to hear from you. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.